make honey, right? I have to admit that before making this episode, I thought so. I figured that all bees were pretty much the same. I figured that they all made honey, they all pollinated whatever random flowers they came across, and they all lived in hives with thousands of other bees, all working together to serve their queen. Right? Well, that's sort of true, except there's one major caveat. Everything I just mentioned only describes a certain kind of bee, the domesticated honeybee. I had no idea that there were thousands of other bees out there that don't fit any of those descriptions. In fact, there are more than 4,000 species of wild bees in North America alone, and they're all pretty different. Some are social, while others are loners. Some pollinate all flowers, while others are pretty picky eaters and only visit a certain type of flower that they like. Native bees can look pretty different too, and even come in some crazy colors. So there's little bees called agapostamins, and they're green, like they're metallic green. And they're my favorite to watch because they have big orange bundles of pollen on their leg. And they're just kind of, they're small, but they're kind of clumsy, and they, they walk around the flower, and it's, it's really fun to show people because that's a really accessible bee. It gets people excited. That's a bee? No way. That's Nick Dorian. Nick is a bee expert and PhD student at Tufts University. And today on the Animalia podcast, he's going to tell us all about bees, especially wild bees. The unsung heroes have been pollinating our world since the beginning. But before we get there, let's jump into a little bee history 101, shall we? If we go back far enough, all bees were once wild. But people came along and got pretty obsessed with honey, and understandably so. We were determined to capture and domesticate certain species of wild bees that were known to make the good stuff. And this is not a new trend. Even ancient Egyptians were beekeepers and buried their dead with honey. Archaeologists have found pots of honey in the tombs of the ancient pyramids, and it's believed that that honey is still edible, even after 3,000 years. Though, in my research, it's unclear if anyone has ever taste-tested that theory. Okay, so let's fast forward now to the Middle Ages, and monks in Europe domesticated wild European honeybees and bred those bees to become even better honey producers and have a more docile, laid-back temperament so that they were less likely to sting. These domesticated honeybees were all the rage in Europe at the time, and later on when the Europeans decided to travel across the Atlantic to set up colonies in the Americas, they took their honeybee hives with them. It's hard to believe, but those domesticated European honeybees that they brought over are the same honeybee species backyard beekeepers and farmers use today. And domesticated honeybees have gone corporate since then. Yes, they produce great honey, but honeybees' biggest draw now is pollination. Today, honeybees are commercialized, and hives are shipped across the country for bees to pollinate farm fields. This method has become an essential part of how food is produced in the U.S. Today, around a third of the food we eat is dependent upon bee pollination. That apple you ate? Yep, that wouldn't be possible without bees. Almonds, tomatoes, you can thank a bee for that too. Bees are essential to our food supply, but it's not just honeybees who are doing the work. Native bees are also chipping in too. Native bees are wild, untamed bees, like the bucking broncos are wild stallions of the sky, and they've been pawning our world long before the honeybees were brought over and stole the spotlight. Native bees might not produce our honey, but they're contributing a heck of a lot more than we might realize. And maybe, just maybe, they might be the future of how we farm. 
This episode, Nick introduces us to the world of native bees and tells us which bees are the rock star pollinators, which ones sting, what bee hotels are, and which bee produces the worst honey he's ever tasted. So let's dive into the world of bees and find out why Nick thinks that native bees really are the bee's knees. People always talk about honeybees, but honeybees are not your thing. Yeah, no, I'm, I love native bees because there's such great diversity. Full disclosure, we would not be able to have a, you know, food security or food system without honeybees. They are an invaluable pollinator from everything from sunflowers to apples to almonds. But you never build a stock portfolio with one stock. Why would you build an entire food system with one pollinator? We can't um, expect honeybees to be able to do it all. Um, but currently, we put a lot of pressure on honeybees. And what that results in is increased stress for honeybees with the way we ship them around the country to different farms. And we give them these monofloral diets. So these diets where they're only feeding on one type of flower for weeks at a time. So they go and they feed on almonds for four weeks. And, you know, an apple a day keeps the doctor away, but not if you're only eating apples all day long. <laughs> and so uh, as a result, honeybees have... Um, it's thought that they have uh, compromised immune systems because of the lack of nutritional diversity they're getting. And so as a result, we just put a lot of stress on their populations and these managed hives suffer the losses over the winter. Um, but native bees provide free pollination services if we just give them a little bit of habitat, right? There are bees known as mason bees or, or the blue orchard bee. And they're known uh, as the blue orchard bee because they're blue and they're really good at pollinating plants that grow in orchards like apples, cherries, uh, and uh, peaches. And a study showed that 250 of these blue orchard bees could pollinate as many apples as 10,000 honeybees, right? Like, like 10,000 honeybees, uh, it's, it's so inefficient. Um, and it's partly because these blue orchard bees are, are native and they've co-evolved with, you know, apple flowers over the last you know, 500, 600 years, and they're really good at flying in inclement weather, right? So early in the season, when the cold and the weather is variable, these blue orchard bees still have to build a nest. Yeah. Honeybees are wimps. They don't go out in like below 50 degrees, and they kind of push the pollen around. Um, and another thing that making honeybees not great for apple, uh, the, these orchards, is that they don't transfer pollen between flowers in the way the orchard is designed. So lots of times you'll have orchards planted like, you know, say an apple orchard, you have Macintosh, and then you have Golden Delicious. And if you transfer pollen between two trees that are both Golden Delicious, sometimes the fruits don't set. You need to transfer pollen between a Golden Delicious and a Macintosh. You need to have this cross-pollination. Um, Honeybees like transferring pollen between Golden Delicious. They like going up and down these rows that are planted with all the same variety. Mason bees can kick them off. So mason bees actually improve honeybee pollination because they move between rows, but they can also kind of corral them to become better pollinators. Yeah, I liken honeybees uh, to, they're an agricultural commodity, right? Um, it's like if, I love birds, and it's like if I, as a bird watcher, went out and watched a chicken farm uh, <laughs> instead of watching uh, bir wild birds like warblers. That's, I don't go out and watch a honeybee hive. I go out and watch wild bees pollinating my community garden. Yeah, and it's not that 
you know, chicken farms are bad, or it's not that honeybees are bad, it's just that there's so much other diversity out there that provides invaluable and frankly, unquantifiable pollination services. Like there's so much we don't know about how much these native bees are uh, contributing to current agriculture and natural ecosystems. And you know, they hold, they hold it all together. Plants rely on wild bees for pollination to reproduce. And without these wild bees, those sorts of communities uh, would start to fall apart. Before we go any further, do you want any chance to do a refresher on what pollination really is? I definitely did. I'm going to try my best to explain how pollination works in under 60 seconds. You can time me. Okay, go. Okay, so every flower has both male and female parts to it. And in order for a plant to spread its genes and reproduce, pollen, that sticky yellow powder, needs to be transferred from the male part of the flower, the anther, to the female part, the stigma. The flower obviously doesn't have arms or legs, so it can't move the pollen itself. So flowers have evolved to entice bees to do the work for them. So how does a bee pollinate a flower? Well, kind of by accident. A bee goes to flower for one reason, to get food. A bee travels from flower to flower collecting nectar and pollen. And in the process, their hairy bodies brush up against the flower and they become covered in that pollen. The bee drinks its fill of nectar and then goes to the next flower, brushing up against that flower too, dropping off the pollen grains. And those pollen grains fertilize a female part of the flower and in time, a seed forms. And voila, it eventually becomes the fruits and vegetables we know and love. A single bee can visit up to 2,000 flowers in a single day. So yeah, that's a lot of pollination. But not all bees pollinate the same. Some are pollinator rock stars, the McJaggers of pollen, and they could be great partners to farmers. Currently, blueberry farmers use a mix of honeybees that are managed and bumblebees. And bumblebees are really great blueberry pollinators because their colonies are just getting started in spring, and they can do what's known as buzz pollination. And buzz pollination essentially is the bee gripping the flower and vibrating its flight muscles such that it releases the pollen that is fused inside the flower. Now, honeybees can't do this, but if you throw enough honeybees at the farm, um, eventually some pollen become dislodged and throwing enough honeybees at a system can give you yields. But applying bumblebees um, at a much lower density than honeybees uh, is much more effective. Nick does research in the field and in the lab, and he focuses a lot of his attention on two species of native bees in particular. One is called Calides inequalis, and Calides inequalis emerges early spring while there's still snow on the ground. And it feeds on lots of different things. It's a pollen generalist. So it'll feed on willows uh, and maples, and really anything that's blooming between the middle of April and all the way through its flight period, which is to the end of May. The second species I study is Calides validus, and it's a, thought to be a blueberry specialist. And what that means is that it only feeds on the blueberry flowers. It collects pollen from blueberry flowers and it brings it back to its nest to feed its offspring. And so even if there are maples or willows blooming, it doesn't care about those flowers. It only wants to get pollen from blueberries. And this could be quite valuable to blueberry farmers. Um, 
No, no one's really studied these blueberry bees. It has evolved and co-evolved with blueberry flowers to be the most efficient at extracting the pollen. And so if there's a way to establish the, these bees in artificial sandboxes. So these guys really like sandy soil. So you can build a sandbox. And my idea is if we can get these bees to establish uh, a nesting aggregation in the sandboxes, this could potentially be transported permanently to a farm. And because these bees only feed on blueberries, they wouldn't be distracted by other weeds or other plants blooming in the area and potentially help to diversify the, the blueberry cropping system and pollination that we have going on. Bees use the position of the sun for navigation, and like us, they also use landmarks in their neighborhoods to help them remember how to get back to their hive or nests. Bees have compound eyes with over 5,000 individual lenses on them, which help them to decipher distance and depth, and their world appears really different. They see things on flowers that we can't see with the human eye. Yeah, so bees uh, can't see red, but they can see ultraviolet light, and so there are, uh, because they've co-evolved with flowers, there are actually patterns on flowers um, that are designed to attract bees uh, that humans can't see. And these are often known as nectar or pollen guides. And, and so they'll often look like a, a bullseye or some racing stripes pointing the bee directly to where that nectar is and where it's going to encounter the pollen. Um, and it's cool if you go up to flowers with ultraviolet lights, you can, uh, black lights, you can look at uh, the different different uh, pollen guides or nectar guides. And some of them are quite visible. If you go to rhododendron um, or even a black-eyed Susan, you'll notice that in the center, there's like a, a darker yellow or a, some, some stripes. Um, and so this is the kind of co-evolution happening right under your eyes, available for you to, to observe and study. So there are you know, 4,000 different species of native bees in the United States and North America and over 20,000 types of bees in the world. And the majority of those bees are solitary. And so what that means is there's a single female that's responsible for building a nest. And so when she's flying around, she's collecting pollen uh, and nectar, and she's bringing it back to the nest, and she's laying a little ball of pollen and nectar. In some bees, it's called bee bread because it's like a stiff dough. In other bees, it's called pollen soup because it's a liquid provision. In any case, this is the food that her offspring are going to develop on. So she'll give uh, each egg that she lays will get one of these provisions. Um, and in bees uh, that nest in sticks like twig nesters, the, the divisions between the cells are made of a variety of materials. And in mason bees like the blue orchard bee, they're called mason bees because they divide each cell with mud. So in addition to needing flowers and water in spring, they also need a source of mud. And they actually build a little mud wall and they do that again. So the tube uh, is linear but it might have six or seven offspring in it. And the really cool thing is that she'll lay females at the back and males at the front, and this is to facilitate mating in the spring. So the males chew their way out a few days before the females, and then they're around so the, the females don't have to wait around to get mated. Does that mess up with genetics, if there's like interbreeding? Uh, so so what, when the males uh, kind of chew their way out, then they intersper they, they kind of fly around the population. Okay. So they're they're not just mating with their siblings. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I don't have to worry about that. Um, it's very Game of Thrones. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but um, not. But not. Here. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> there are no native bees that make honey that we consume. So all the honey we eat is from European honeybees. But it doesn't make them any less important. Um, I've actually tried um, the nectar that the, the bumblebees 
leave for their nurses. So bumblebees are social and they actually do have a division of labor. So there, is, there are nurse bees that hang around the colony and they're quite small and you have larger workers that forage. And they actually do provide some honey, um, some small amounts of honey for these nurse bees. And it's terrible. It's the most vile thing I've ever tasted. It just makes your mouth cringe and curdle. <laughs> it's like, I'm glad we only have honeybee honey. <laughs> Do you find yourself almost like a spreading the word about native bees? This is like a mission of yours to get people to appreciate. Oh, a hundred percent. I I love uh, sharing what I know about native bees um, because I, my goal is to try to get people excited about these bees. And there's such an inherent fear about bees that's instilled with most of us from a young age, right? I was scared of bees until I was 18. I covered a bumblebee when I was younger with my favorite trusty blue trowel. I was five years old uh, and I got stung. And every time I heard like the faintest buzz, I you know, ran for the hills because I was worried about these. But the majority of these, these native bees, they don't sting. Only, first off, only females can sting. So a, a stinger is a modified um, ovipositor from their, uh, their ancestor wasps. And so first off, only females have it. Um, and then we move into native bees, and the majority of them don't want to sting you because they're not protecting anything, right? Honeybees have this big colony, and so they, maybe they're more inclined to defend it. But for this female bee that's guarding these seven eggs with her life, she just wants to finish it and move on because that reproduction is more valuable to her than warding off you know, the human that you know, accidentally brushed her off her, her arm. Um, and so... The majority of these native bees don't sting, and many of them can't even sting you. Um, they're, they're so small that you know, it looks like a little ant on your skin, right? Bees range in tremendous size. You think of bee, bumblebees are fuzzy and, and charismatic, um, at least I do. Um, but a lot of these bees are incredibly tiny. Um, there are bee called fairy bees, uh, and they're, almost, they're microscopic. Um, and, and so these bees, even if they do possess a stinger, uh, would not be able to, you wouldn't feel it. I've been stung during my field work this year, and I, every time it happened, I always asked myself, did I just get stung? Like, I didn't even know it was happening. But then, then I realized, yes, she did sting me because I was <laughs> manipulating her in a way that she didn't like. Um, and so, yeah, so if you're not picking up bees and petting them and holding them, <laughs> you have literally no chance of getting stung by a native bee. How many times have you been stung probably in your life? Um, so I've been stung by a bee. I've been stung by that bumblebee when I was five. And I've been stung three times by a Kalides. And that's it. What? And I study bees for a living, right? Because I've been stung way more than you. So how is that possible? So Am I doing something wrong? I don't think you're doing something wrong. Um, I, would, I would venture to guess that a lot of the stings you might have had were not by bees, but by yellow jackets. And so yellow jackets are wasps. Mm. Um, and they are... Um, they, they thrive in human-dominated environments, and they love food because they're meat-eaters, they're carnivores. Um, and so they're the ones that are visiting your hamburger on the 4th of July, <laughs> right? Like, bumblebees, they're vegetarians. They How could do you care know less, <laughs> right? <laughs> always. <laughs> uh, because when I, when I was younger, they were always swatting around. And they're, but we have an inherent instinct to say, ah, oh, bee, get away. a type of bee called a sweat bee, and it actually will land on your arm and try to, to drink your sweat because it, it also needs sodium and calcium. All bees need these sorts of minerals. Um, and 
I was talking to someone uh, at my field site this summer, and some of my Khalidis that also incidentally feed on sweat landed on his arm, and he started freaking out. I said, oh, come, come, come down. You're more likely to get stung if you start swatting them than if you just kind of lightly brush them off. And there's also lots of bees that make loud buzzing noises, like carpenter bees, but actually have no interest in you. These are likely males in spring that are looking for females, and they're big, they're big bees, and they you know, make biz buzzing noises. Uh, and they often kind of dive bomb at your head in this manic flight, but they're not trying to attack you. Um, and so part of uh, what I love talking to people about is, is that being more comfortable with bees. And I, I love kind of talking to, to younger children about this because, you know, if you get them from a young age to appreciate bees, uh, even if they never go on to, you know, look at a bee ever again, they just have this idea that, you know, bees are not to blame. Um, they're actually, we, we wouldn't be able to have food without them. heard a lot about colony collapse disorder in the news, where farmers are reporting massive die-offs of their honeybees. But native bees are also having rough go, too. It's not in the headlines, and it's not receiving as much attention. In short, wild bees are disappearing, and not a lot of people are noticing. A review from the Center for Biological Diversity concluded that more than half of the native bee species in North America are declining, and one in four are at risk of extinction. But native bee declines, for the most part, are not super well documented. So for the few species that have records back from the early 1900s, we have seen some large-scale declines. In particular, there's a bumblebee called Bombus affinis, the rusty-patched bumblebee. And it used to be the most abundant pollinator of cranberries uh, on the East Coast. And over the last 30 years, its range has been restricted by 90%, such that it really only occurs uh, in a few spots in the Midwest. Now, I never grew up seeing Bombus affinis on flowers, but you go to collections and, you know, 1995 from Medford, Massachusetts, and the fact that we're in Medford, Massachusetts right now, and you can't find a Bombus affinis, it's kind of troubling. Um, there was a, a study published um, last year that showed, I think, 70% decline of insects in protected areas in Germany over the last 30 years. Right? This is these are the areas that are supposed to be protecting the species we need most, and yet insect decline is still occurring, likely from pesticides and other external factors outside of the reserve. And losing insects and breaking that backbone of these ecosystems, I don't even know if we know what the consequences will be because it's a global scale. As a researcher, Nick spends every spring out in the field trying to find out how bees are coping with habitat loss. He's trying to answer a lot of different questions. The kind of information that I think would be really valuable to know is, well, how many offspring can be reared on this area of flowers? Or how far do bees move? If we take away a big part of habitat, can bees move from habitat A to habitat B? And we don't know that information uh, really for most bee species. And this sort of information is it's really important to have for uh, effective conservation, right? Because how do we know how much of some sort of habitat to protect? How much uh, habitat supports these bees? The best ways you can support bees, I have Nick's five ways. Way number one is plant native flowers. Um, no matter how attractive non-native herbs might be, there's no substitute for native plants uh, that the bees co-evolved with, right? Um, the second thing is provide nesting habitat. So if your garden has mulch in it or a weed barrier, I'm sorry to say, but that provides no habitat for bees. Bees that nest in the ground, which is about 70% of solitary bees, need bare earth. 
The other 30% of solitary bees are what's known as twig nesters, and they use um, cavities in trees. And one really um, popular way of supporting those sorts of bees now is to build what's known as a bee hotel, which is essentially um, a bundle of reeds or bamboo um, or even cardboard tubes are great uh, substitutes. Um, you just kind of bundle them together, about 50, 100 stems, and you hang it horizontally uh, from a tree. And over the season, bees that need cavities, such as uh, mason bees or leafcutter bees, will build their homes in, in those trees, uh, in those nest boxes, yeah. So, so be honest, how many bee hotels do you have in your backyard? Uh, I have two. Uh, <laughs> so modest. <laughs> yeah, it's um, in the city, um, there are actually lots of non-native bees use bee hotels. There's a bee called Anthidium that it's a, it's a European wool carter bee. And it actually has these little pincers on the back of its uh, abdomen, and it uses it to pierce the wings of bumblebees and other native bees that no. intrude on its no. territory. Yeah, oh. so it's, it's a pretty, uh, it's a big bully. And currently <laughs> one of my bee hotels is completely populated by this bee. And so I don't actually know if I'm doing that big of a service by putting this You're hotel up. The <laughs> right? the predator. The so the, the, the other three things uh, before I forget, uh, the third is avoid all pesticides. Fourth is provide fresh water. So bees also need to drink water in addition to pollen and nectar. And the last is just share what you know with other people because the more people that are aware that native bees exist and that honeybees are from Europe, it's like there's nothing that beats this you know, word of mouth about this. You know, save the bees, but what bees? We wanna save native bees. How many native bees are in the Boston area? Hmm. I don't know if anyone's actually done a study of the diversity of native bees in Boston area, but in other cities, um, they found you know, other metropolitan areas around the country, they found anywhere from about 60 to over 100 types of native bees. Um, and this is, uh, it might be surprising that cities are actually quite good for bees. But if you think about it, you have l relatively low pesticide loads, so you don't have these big crop dusters going over. Uh, you also do have a lot of diversity of flowers, right? If you think of the flowers that people grow in their community gardens, you have tomatoes and you have peppers. You don't just have one sort of nutritional diversity. And you also have flowers throughout the entire year. People love putting flowers out on their window boxes. People love putting flowers out, sunflowers all the way into autumn. And that's, that's like a recipe for hosting a great bee diversity. These lots of solitary native bees only fly for you know, two, um, two months out of the year. And if the plant that they feed on isn't available, then they just can't live. Uh, and there's lots of specialists, bees that, just like Calides validus, that only feeds on blueberries, you have specialists only on sunflower. And so if you, if you plant sunflowers in your yard, you are hosting lots of, potentially lots of specialist bees that can't complete their life cycle on any other type of food. Um, and so that sort of diversity of flowers is essential to hosting all these different types of bees and one of the reasons why cities are so great. Bees might have small brains, but we're starting to discover just how smart they are. Researchers at Queen Mary University of London have trained bumblebees in a lab to roll a ball into a goal, like a little mini soccer player. Bees have learned to master the skill really quickly, just by watching other bees do it. And they've also learned that they're pretty good problem solvers. They can learn how to quickly pull a string to get food. Okay, so one of my favorite animals is the bumblebee. 
Like, by far. Yeah. <laughs> How can I make sure that my... I mean, yes, I'll plant native plants. I won't use pesticides. But what's something that I can do to attract them? Because right now I don't have that many in my yard. Yeah. So I guess there's two ways of attracting bumblebees. You can attract queens uh, to, f to nest in your yard, and you can attract the workers to uh, feed on flowers in your yard. The best way to help bumblebee populations, uh, I would I would say, would be to target that queen, the queen life site, life go stage. For, go for her. Yeah, and uh, a couple ways you can attract her and entice her to nest in your yard, which is not going to be a big swarming hive. It's going to be relatively benign. In fact, you might not even know you had a bumblebee colony in your yard um, because it never reaches more than a couple hundred workers. Um, but you can provide leaf litter for the queen. So if you have a flower pot. Leave, it, leave some leaves on top of it, and she will actually spend the winter in that leaf litter. So unlike honeybee hives that actually you know, make honey to survive the cold period when there's no flowers, bumblebees have a slightly different life cycle. They form annual colonies, and so every year the colony grows throughout the summer, and the queen that started that colony dies at the end of the year, but only after uh, producing new queens. So she transfers on her genes um, through males and queens, and those new queens that have been mated spend the winter underground. And leaf litter in your yard, so keeping a messy garden or a messy yard is actually ideal for these bumblebee queens. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> right? You know, you say, oh, man, I can't have time for my fall cleanup. You just maybe you miss the spring cleanup, too, and the next fall, and just never clean up again. <laughs> and that's actually quite ideal for bees. Um, in terms of supporting bumblebees uh, in your garden, um, Again, I recommend, uh, if you were to plant just three types of flowers, I would recommend three things that bloomed independent of one another. So uh, as much as I like having lots of flowers around 4th of July, a bee would prefer it if you had something blooming in May, something in June, and something in July, right? Something that uh, blooms in three different months. And some of my favorite plants for bees, um, bee balm. Um, it's a native, and it's highly attractive not only to bees, but also to hummingbirds and butterflies. Um, mountain mint. Um, is was named the uh, 2018 plant of the year by Garden Club of America. It, it is a pollinator, not just bees, but butterflies and flies and, and uh, beetles and beneficial wasps will also be attracted to. I love that you know that. <laughs> the, the mountain mint. Um, and in the, it, I guess uh, later on, uh, those those two will bloom about the same time of the year. For fall plants, I recommend um, goldenrods uh, and asters. Like New England aster is a great plant to choose. Um, and then earlier in the spring, some good options are penstemon, uh, which is a uh, uh, beard tongue, um, or uh, wild indigo, which is known as baptisia. And these are perennial plants that um, are very beautiful uh, and drought tolerant. So even though you put it in, you don't have to worry about mulching them. The bees will thank you because they require so little water once they're established. And you know, in addition to studying native bees, I, I love studying um, you know, and planting these, these flowers for bees. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, this is kind of cool. Very cool. Thanks for listening. This episode is produced by me, Anna Miller, with help from Nick Dorian. Music by Pottington Bear, Chris Hagen, and Blue Dot Sessions. So, as you know, every episode of the Animalia podcast comes with photographs, and this episode is no exception. Nick brought in his bee collection to the photo studio, and we captured them with a super crazy strong macro lens. To see our photos and check out some of the native bees that we talked about in this episode, visit animaliapodcast.com. That's A-N-I-M-A-L-I-A podcast.com. 
There, in addition to our photo gallery, we will also link to resources for how to help out your native bee neighbors. We'll have links to which flowers are awesome for your resident bees. We'll have step-by-step -step guides for how to make your own bee hotels and links to other fun facts and bee videos, including, yes, the bumblebee soccer player. While you're there, drop us a line and say hi. We'd love to hear what you think about the podcast, and we'd love to know which animals you want to hear about. You never know. It just might turn into the next episode. Thanks for listening.